Good morning, everyone. It is really good to see a full, or at least fuller, crowd out there than we've had for, for some time. It, around here, Christmas break is kind of this lengthy, extended thing. But welcome to those of you that I, I haven't gotten a chance to welcome back. It's good to see you, and we're, we're glad you're here. We're continuing, or kind of we're actually really starting our, our sermon series in the book of Revelation chapters 2 and 3, looking at the seven churches in Asia Minor that the Apostle John uh, addressed. And uh, if you were here last Sunday, we kind of had an introductory message about chapter 1, and we looked at John's vision of Jesus and his commission to write. And today we're kind of jumping in. As Andrew said, we're calling this series, Don't Stop Believing one of the main themes in the book of Revelation. I know we often think about Revelation in terms of the visions and these cataclysmic events and and the Antichrist and all this scary stuff. But one of the the main messages that, that just weaves throughout this book is the call to be faithful, the call to endure, the call to follow Jesus faithfully, to keep on believing and trusting in him no matter what. So one of the things that these letters to these seven churches do, it provides an evaluation of each of these churches from from Jesus' point of view. Our society likes evaluating things. We've gotten especially good at evaluating things since the rise of social media and and other online apps and, and so forth. If you're looking for a place to stay or a place to eat, you can always pull out the site or the app of TripAdvisor And it breaks down the reviews of different places. Different types of service providers get rated on different things. The general public only gave it 45%. That's an interesting thing to me. It shows that two unique groups of people are looking with really different criteria of what would make a movie good or make it bad. It's an interesting thing, though, because you have to figure out who is right. Is the general public right in giving it a low failing grade? Or are the critics right in, in giving it such high marks? And we can do similar things when we start to look at how we would evaluate a local church, too. We might, we don't do it consciously, but we do it. We give a church ratings based on things like music, preaching, age-specific ministries, size. But are these the, the criteria that Jesus uses to evaluate his church? 
When it comes to something like Star Wars The Last Jedi, you can argue that, ah, those critics, they're a bunch of paid shills for Disney and the directors they like. They'd give it good marks no matter what. Or then somebody could turn around and argue the the opposite, that, oh, the public, all they want is the Star Wars nostalgia of their youth. They won't be satisfied with anything. The, The original trilogy is all that they like, and that's all they'll be satisfied with. They'll never be satisfied. So how do we evaluate Because when it comes to evaluating a local church, we can't go back and forth this way and say, well, there's this point of view and there's that point of view. When we open up the Bible and we hear how Jesus evaluated these local churches, that's it. That's the last word. You you can't say, well, that's just one perspective among many. No, that's the Lord speaking. So we're going to spend the next seven weeks looking at how Jesus evaluates these different local churches. Some are evaluated quite positively. Some are evaluated quite negatively, and most are a mixed bag. And there's something pretty real and pretty authentic about that. However, we're going to have to be prepared that a lot of the things that are of a big concern to us and what we would look for in a local church don't even make the list at all. Now, we can argue, oh, well, you know, the world of the first century, that was a different world. They didn't have to worry about the sound mix back then and, you know, all the children's ministries and things. And it's true, they didn't. But this is bigger than just time and and distance and cultural separation. It's true that churches look different now than they looked in the Apostle John's day. But secondary concerns are still secondary concerns. And primary concerns the ones the Lord addresses in these letters are still primary concerns that we ought to be concerned with today. So if you would like to stand, we'll read our sermon text for today. Although I'm still using my usual ESV Bible as a prop, today I'm going to be reading it from uh, the New King James Version, and uh, it'll make a little bit more sense uh, once we actually get there. Revelation 2, starting at, at the first verse. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. This is God's word. You can have a seat. So just a little bit of background about Ephesus. We won't belabor this point, but it gets first place, first mentioned, because of its location, most likely. It's the closest city to Patmos, and so a messenger would have taken the letter uh, there first. But it's first also because it's it's a premier city, in, in this part of the world. If we have a map, I think we have a map. You can see Ephesus there is even written in bigger type. We still do that on maps, right? We, we, the important cities get their name in bigger, bigger printing. 
Ephesus was linked to a seaport and was such it was a powerful trading city was home to the temple of Artemis which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world it's the only church or city of these seven in Revelation that has an actual letter from another apostle written to it in the New Testament although Paul does mention that he wrote a letter to the Laodicean church but it seems to have been lost Ephesus was a pretty important city it's big it was successful and it seems that as is often the case the church in that city started to take on some of the the characteristics of its surrounding culture the hustle and bustle the kind of hard driving hard charging nature getting stuff done seems to have been a characteristic of Ephesus as well everyone always says that the last church in the list the Laodicean church is the worst they receive almost no praise from Jesus and there's, there's that famous phrase, right, when he's, he's talking to the church in Laodicea, he calls them lukewarm, and he says he threatens he's going to vomit them out of his mouth. Oh, that's graphic. It sure is. For my money, though, I think Ephesus might actually be in worse shape, and I'll explain why. Laodicea probably would have looked problematic from the outside. People could see that this church had problems that they didn't really care about the gospel anymore, that it was a church in decline, that it was a church, as we would say now, they've gone liberal, whatever the case might be. Whereas Ephesus would have looked successful, orthodox, like a church with lots going on and lots to commend it. Good ministry, lots of programs. They're doing a lot for the Lord. As bad as things were at Laodicea, it's interesting to note that the Lord there ends with an invitation. I stand at the door and knock, and if you'll invite me in, you know, we'll have fellowship. Ephesus has a very stern warning, though. You know, despite all this activity, if you don't repent, it's game over. I'm removing you. Pretty stern warning. Even, you might say, a threat. Perhaps to put it a bit more precisely, Ephesus might not be the worst in terms of moral laxity or false doctrine, but they might be in the greatest danger in a lot of ways. These letters follow a pretty standard pattern. They begin with a brief description of the risen Christ, which generally harkens back to certain elements from the the vision that John had in the first chapter. And then they begin with the important words, I know. Let's maybe just pause and consider those words for a moment or two. Jesus knows. Like any proper understanding of the Lord and who he is and how he works, when he says, I know, that should be both supremely comforting and probably supremely terrifying as well. It's comforting to know that Jesus is well aware of that time. Maybe this week, right, when you were unfairly criticized for something, but you bore it graciously and didn't retaliate. You did something kind or generous or thoughtful, but it went unnoticed. You ended up bearing the consequences for somebody else's mistake. But again, you didn't, you didn't retaliate. You didn't try to take revenge. Jesus knows that time or maybe that season when you just felt overwhelmed with school or work or the kids or elderly parents or whatever other things are on your plate. Jesus knows the pain of, of being the only Christian in your family, possibly. But it's also supremely sobering to know that that Jesus is also well aware of the time. And again, maybe it was just this week. You said unkind words about someone to another person. 
even if they were mostly true. You went back to that website you said you weren't going back to in 2019. You, you trolled around and wasted time on the internet or going like this with your phone instead of spending time in the Word or in prayer. You, you stretched the truth about how much of your course reading you did when you had to fill out that little slip of paper at the beginning of class. You lost your temper with your spouse or your kids or your roommate or whatever else. I suspect Jesus will have seen quite a number of things on both sides of that divide for many of us this week. Like he saw with the church in Ephesus, Jesus sees it all. He sees it more accurately than we do as individuals. And he sees with perfect clarity who we are as a church, too. So what did he see for the Ephesian church? What things in his evaluation of the church in Ephesus will help us to understand the kind of things that Jesus is looking for, the kind of things that Jesus cares about, as maybe distinct from the kind of things that we get fixated on? First, their works. Jesus assures the church in Ephesus that he knows their works. For many of us, good evangelical Protestants, works might be a sort of dirty word, which is kind of strange because of all the kind of different variations of Christianity, we've kind of been one of the most strict and the most focused on morality and good behavior and doing stuff. That's perhaps another discussion for another day, but nevertheless, Jesus affirms this church for their works, for their efforts at following him faithfully, for their effort in applying the things that they know, for not just being content with having head knowledge, doctrine about things, but actually applying that in day-to-day life, and how they live in their city, and how they live as a family of faith, one with another. For taking the revealed word and making it the lived and applied word. Friends, works are not bad. And works are bigger and more than just rules or standards of morality. Works are caring for people and teaching the children and sharing your faith and all the rest, and they are good. Jesus says he knows their endurance. Jesus situates their works alongside or in the context of their endurance. This is really important. Throughout Revelation, as I said before, endurance is a major theme. Enduring patiently and faithfully in a world that doesn't appreciate your message and how you live is a major theme. He says it actually twice in this letter. He commends them for their endurance. That's important. They've clearly demonstrated this and exemplified it to a high degree. I'm really trying to make make a deal of this because endurance isn't something we naturally get very excited about in our culture. Either our secular culture or our religious culture. Most of us know far more than we actually put into practice. And yet, we somehow think that just a little bit more information will solve our problems. Or if we decide to take some sort of action, we're we're always about the quick fix. In our time management efforts, we're we're far more drawn to life hacks and time-saving apps than we are to just saying no to some things and logging out of Facebook and going and doing our work uninterrupted. In our fitness or health efforts, we're far more drawn to the latest fad diet or exercise program or machine than to the simple, basic principles of, of healthy eating and regular exercise. In our lives of faith, 
we're often far more drawn to the newest or latest or most hyped conference or event, book, rather than the time-honored spiritual disciplines of prayer, scripture, fellowship, hospitality, worship, and so forth. And for honest, we have to question whether this sort of attitude is pleasing to Jesus. Let me rephrase that. If we're honest, we will have to own up to the fact that this sort of quick-fix attitude is not, in fact, pleasing to Jesus. Let me just go down a rabbit trail for a minute with an illustration. A a couple of weeks back, I mentioned my fondness for this antiquated hobby I have of shooting pictures with film. Now, it's actually kind of this growing resurgence hipstery thing, but never mind that for a moment. There's kind of the, but, but, but there is kind of this online kind of film renaissance community on Instagram and, and in other online social media sharing platforms. It seems to be growing amongst a younger audience in particular. And I've gotten plugged into that a bit. But I've noticed there's, a, there's different kinds of people in these groups. There are those that actually go out there and take photos and share them with the group for feedback and critique and forming community. Then there are just those who talk big, like they know all there is to know about photography, and oh yeah, I'm a big expert, I know all this. But all they ever post photos of are the new cameras they buy. They never actually post any photos that they've actually taken with those cameras. Like, oh, I bought this Leica, it's worth $6,000. Like, well, maybe you should take some pictures with it and show us what you can do. But they do. I just find those people insufferable, to be quite honest. Who's making the, the point of this, though, is who's making progress? The guy with the $6,000 camera who never takes any photos, or the guy with the $60 camera who, who's out there taking shots every day of his pet and whatever's going on and the, bugging his friends and relatives to sit for portraits? The latter, obviously, because he's actually doing stuff. And he's actually doing it with discipline and regularity, day after day after day, getting incrementally better and making progress. I say all that to highlight the fact that consistency is key, and it's a really overlooked virtue in our culture. The patient endurance of living out your faith day after day, consistently, is pleasing to Jesus even if it's not always really exciting to us. Thirdly, their doctrine. Another commendation this church receives is for their doctrine. Jesus commends them for not putting up with evil people and opposing those who are false, who say they are apostles but not. In a time prior to the formation of the New Testament canon, at least in anything like the form we have it now, and and especially even more, even if the New Testament canon had been formed and the books decided which were scripture and which were not, the average person wouldn't have been able to own a copy of them anyhow and go home and read it for themselves. The office of an apostle then, as an authorized messenger of the gospel, was huge. So somebody claiming to be an apostle had to be tested carefully to see whether they actually knew accurate information about Jesus that they could tell and pass along as they were starting churches and so forth or if they were just making stuff up to try to make fame and and sometimes money for themselves. And this church in Ephesus, unlike so many of the others that will follow, they did not put up with those who were false. They did not compromise on who they were willing to listen to and trust as authoritative messengers of the truth about Jesus. 
It wouldn't stand for those who wanted to peddle the word of God for profit in order to get rich. It wouldn't stand for those that wanted to mingle and mix the gospel of Christ with their idolatrous pagan worldview in order to make it more palatable. It wouldn't stand for those who just wanted to tell people what they wanted to hear. This was a church that knew what it stood for and what it didn't. And again, in light of the rest of Revelation, this is really important. A major theme of the book is standing firm in the face of false teaching that prevents a clever counterfeit to the truth of Jesus and his gospel. We're presented with really stark imagery later on in the book about the Antichrist and his false prophet and how they deceive people. It's scary stuff. So this is a model church from all appearances. If this church was around today, it would be the in church. It would be the growing church. It would be the church that the the smaller churches in the area envied, if they were honest, and wanted to be like and emulate. They'd have the nicest facilities, the biggest staff, the best tech equipment. They'd have ministries for every age group. Their pastor would probably be doing the conference circuit, speaking here and there. He'd have a sermon podcast that more than his mother listened to. He'd have books that were published. And yet, and yet, not all is well. Not all is as good as might appear on the surface. I have this against you. You've abandoned your first love. It had to have stung. had to have been unexpected. I'm sure some people probably left the church over this. Imagine that you were there, right? You're gathered in the assembly, and this messenger from the exiled apostle shows up at your church, pulls the scroll out, Ah, this is the part that's for you, Ephesian Christians. Good, 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 good. This is good, this is good, this is good. Oh, except you're terrible and you've left your first love, right? Like that must have landed just like a thump. Silence. And then the murmuring, Oh no, we haven't. I can't believe he... Who does he think he is to say that? We're doing all this. We're doing all this. A lot of our modern translations have something like, You've abandoned the love you had at first. That's what the ESV has. In other words, they, they interpret first as, as describing a sequence or a chronology. You were doing better in the past times, but now, not so much. I'm not sure that's precisely what John is getting at. I'm not sure he's really chastising them for, for the lowering of the quality or the intensity or the feelingness of their love. I think, rather, he means by first, first in importance. I don't know that it's so much about the quality of their love, but the object of their love. We saw this in our earlier reading. Uh, Now, when asked what the most important, or literally the first commandment was, Jesus responded, not with the first commandment chronologically. The first commandment in the Bible chronologically is, anybody, don't eat the fruit, Right? But that's not what Jesus answered when he was asked what the first commandment was. He said the most important commandment, the, the one with the highest priority. And that was love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, etc. I think that famous teaching of our Lord is pretty informative when we consider what first means. But let's dig a little bit deeper. Throughout Israel's history in the Old Testament, the dominant question was always in one form or another... Would Israel be faithful to the Lord, or would they forsake or abandon him? 
This was frequently compared to a marriage covenant, such that worshiping the other pagan gods in the land around them was likened to adultery or prostitution. And we see this all throughout Israel's history. Perhaps most notably, the, the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah in particular emphasize this theme. From Isaiah chapter 1, Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. And just a few verses down. How the faithful city has become a whore, she who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. And from Jeremiah chapter 2, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. Then just a few verses down. For long ago I broke your yoke and burst your bonds, but you said, I will not serve. Yes, on every high hill and under every green tree, you bow down like a whore. And that is, my friends, not pleasant reading. And the result for Israel was the destruction of Jerusalem. The prophets warned the people time and time again, you've been unfaithful, you've been unfaithful, return to the Lord, you've forsaken him. And eventually, the calls to return to the Lord ran out. And as you read the book of Jeremiah, it turns into predictions of judgment. The Lord is going to judge you. He's going to remove your city and your temple. The very thing that he promised to do to the church in Ephesus if they were not returning to the Lord. So what's the solution? We have to be so, so careful. It's one of the reasons I wanted to emphasize that I don't think first is... I'm sure there is an element of chronology there. Things have gotten worse over time, but I don't think that's the primary thing that we should be concerned with. I want to explain the danger that's, that's lurking there. Our passage, depending on what translation you have, has something like, the, the, the solution to this is to do the works you did at first. In some of older translations, and, and quite literally, it just says, do the first works. Again, I, the more I looked at this, the more I became convinced that first isn't primarily concerned with the sequence in time, but with rank or supremacy. Do the important works. First love refers not to first in time, but rather the most important. I think first works is similar. Not just go back to doing things the way you used to do, but rather recommit yourselves to doing what is most essential. So what's the, why am I harping on this so much? What's the danger? If we misunderstand first, do the first works again, as go back to doing things the way you used to do them, we can so easily be seduced by the myth of a golden age. You hear this a lot, right? This institution would just get back to the way we used to do things. We'd solve all our problems. We'd be happier if we just went back to how we did things in the, in the good old days. The church needs to get back to how they did things in the first century when things were great. But we don't live in the 1970s or the 1950s or the 1890s or the 1500s or the first century. We live now. And, you know, truthfully, we probably misremember some of those glory days. They probably weren't as good as, as people like to think they were. We exaggerate how good they were. We misremember and forget about some of the bad things about those times. There's a second danger. It comes in misunderstanding the, the word works in first 
works. Earlier on, John commends the Ephesian Christians for their works. There's a huge danger, though, when something goes wrong, to assume that the way to fix it is just keep on doing what you're doing, but do it harder. Do it with more effort and more energy. And do it more. Do it harder. Do it faster. Frequently, this kind of doubling down accomplishes just burning people out on tasks that aren't accomplishing that much. Let's remember, right? The doing the same thing over and over again, even if you do it harder and more efficiently and faster, whatever, if that's all you're doing and you're expecting different results, that's the definition of insanity, right? Activity doesn't necessarily equal effectiveness, and it certainly doesn't necessarily equal faithfulness. Look at the situation here. Jesus already commended them for their works. They're, they're, they're getting A's in the works department. So the solution to their problem can't be doing yet more works. They're, they're doing great at that already. So what do we make of this charge to do the works you did at first? I don't think it's just pick up the slack and work harder. I don't think it's so much the, the quality of their activities in and of themselves that's the problem. Rather, it's the motivation. The church is doing a lot of good things. They have a lot of great ministries and programs. But what's their motivation? What's ours? Is it just activity for the sake of activity? There's an interesting exchange between Jesus and the crowds in John chapter 6. This is just after Jesus has fed the 5,000. And he, he warns them, Do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do? to be doing the works of God. Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. If we want to consider the first works in the sense of foremost or primary, there it is. Believe, that is, trust in, be faithful to the one God has sent. The first and greatest commandment, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength, with all our mind, with all we've got. Only when the rest of our works and our activity are rooted in this do they really count for anything. Otherwise, we are probably just building our own kingdom instead of his. So how do we land this for ourselves in this specific time and specific place? And I need to be clear. I mean by that Cairnport Community Church in 2019. That's really the point of preaching as I understand it, is distinct from teaching. You know, commentaries, especially those that are of a more, you know, practical or uh, application kind of nature, usually end each section with, with a section called something like application. They try to make the text practical. It helps to translate the biblical text into a modern situation. But preaching needs to pick up where that left off and not just translate the text into a generic modern situation, but actually translate the text into a specific contemporary situation. It needs to move beyond uh, application for the church in the present time to this church in the present time. So we need to hear this as addressed to us. First, I think we must break ourselves of the habit of evaluating what goes on at our church with a worldly entertainment or service provider metrics mindsets. 
I firmly believe that any local church should work hard to care for people. And I admit that we, like any local church, could do better. We've sometimes failed in this area. And I will give you my word that we will continue as a church and as a church leadership trying to improve and continue to excel in this area. But we have to approach this issue together with something better and deeper than just a consumer mentality. That's fine for hotels, for restaurants, and for movies, but it doesn't have a place in the, like, in the life of a local church. A consumer mentality says, I need somebody to provide for me. A Christian mentality says, we need to provide for one another. Second, we must break ourselves of the tendency to assume that one more program will provide the solution to a perceived problem or need. The Ephesian church had many works, and to use contemporary language, we could say ministries or programs or whatever we like, and probably be pretty accurate. And they were commended by the Lord for these things, so they're not bad. But they had a larger problem of a lack of love, and my best guess is that they were making these ministries, these works, these good things they were doing, ends in themselves, rather than means to serve God and love people. Like most modern churches, we love programs. We run programs. We have different ministries to care for different areas. But let's remember, they're not ends in themselves, and they can't be our first love, and they need to serve a purpose. Third, I've mentioned this already, but we need to beware the temptation that return to your first works means go back to doing things the way we used to do them. Beware the seduction of a perceived golden age and the myth of the possibility of returning there. The relative newness or oldness of a, of a work, a program, a ministry, a method doesn't say anything about its ex effectiveness or its acceptance before God. What counts is that any ministry or method glorifies God while operating in the grace of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. Christianity is rooted in the past, in the historical realities that happened and that the Bible records, but it doesn't live in the past. It lives now, and it looks ahead, even as it looks back. Fourth, instead of that, we must return to the basics of the gospel and throw ourselves afresh on the mercy of Jesus. We need to make it our first work to seek his glory rather than our own in all things. We must make it our first love to love him more than we love the praise of others. We must seek hard after this first work and first love in prayer and scripture and personal and corporate worship. We must rigorously question our priorities to see whether we're placing any other works or loves in a higher place than our Lord. And when we find those idols in our lives, we've got to be ruthless in tearing those things down wherever we find them. And we need to take seriously the very real threat I would say threat from Jesus, that if we don't remove these idols, the Lord will remove us. But we also need to take seriously the beautiful ending of this passage, where Jesus is holding out hope for the one who conquers. Jesus doesn't call us to just barely scrape by because life is hard and the culture is threatening and it's hard to be a Christian. He calls us to conquer. And that's a big call. So let's, as the text calls us, hear 
what the Spirit says to the churches, to the churches and to our church. And let's not shrink back from the high calling that he's given to us. The moment I go, I talk about throwing ourselves afresh on the mercy of Jesus and the, the basic truths of the gospel as we make it our first work to seek our first love. We have a tangible reminder of that today as we partake in the Lord's Supper. Our Lord left us a very simple and very tangible reminder of it, that how it is that we can come before him. And I think it's, it's appropriate as we begin in earnest today our study in these two chapters in the book of Revelation that we celebrate this together. Two of the great themes of the book of Revelation are that Jesus is the Lamb who was slain and Jesus is the King who is coming. And as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, those are the very things that we celebrate, right? We look back to Jesus' death and his sacrifice for us and we look ahead and we celebrate that he will return for us. So I'd invite those